Good afternoon. I'm Father Simeon. This afternoon, I would like to talk about an orthodox approach to Old Testament interpretation. This goes to the very heart of orthodox education generally. And what I'm going to be saying is based on a lecture that I delivered to the students of the St. Constantine College uh, this month. And I am now presenting it for a broader audience because it's so important, not only to interpreting the Old Testament, but really to the way that we educate as Orthodox Christians. The primary question that I will be addressing is how do Orthodox Christians interpret the Holy Scripture and particularly the Old Testament? First, let me say that we don't study the Hebrew Bible, but the Old Testament, which implies relationship with the New Testament. The Old Testament is included in the Holy Scripture of the Holy Orthodox Church, so the Old Testament is Christian Scripture. The Old Testament is interpreted within the life, that is the tradition, of the Orthodox Church. Let me say that again. The Old Testament is interpreted within the life that is the tradition of the Orthodox Church. We should remember that no one possesses the authority to start a church based on the Bible. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, possesses the divine authority to found a church, his church, his body on earth, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Scripture came forth from the life of the church, which is, as the Apostle Paul said, God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. At Holy Pentecost, Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord of all, sent down the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, to enlighten his disciples and apostles, leading them into all truth. Immediately, those who had been wise through the Holy Spirit began their full apostolic ministry to the world. Later, the persecutors saw would participate in this Pentecost experience and join them as the Apostle Paul. They didn't preach from the Gospels or the other New Testament books because those writings didn't exist yet. The New Testament is a product of this ministry. The church wrote the New Testament for the church and was meant to be understood within the life of the church. The New Testament canon, as we know it, didn't completely form until the fourth century. And that was not a problem. The biblical text was not the ultimate source of authority, but the church, the pillar and ground of truth. Without the New Testament, what were the apostles teaching? Let me ask that again. Without the New Testament, what were the apostles teaching? They taught the tradition. What is the tradition? In the broadest sense, the tradition called the Holy Tradition or the Apostolic Tradition or sometimes Tradition with a capital T to distinguish it from cultural traditions. It is the whole life of faith. It is revelation. It is God revealing himself. Holy Tradition is an alterable, unchanging teaching that the apostles received from Jesus Christ through their experience as disciples and the knowledge they received through the Holy Spirit and that has been passed down to us even today within the church. Holy tradition includes 
what is included in Holy Scripture and everything else handed down that wasn't written down. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, whether by word of mouth or by letter. What about the Old Testament? To use St. Paul's image of the church as Israel, the Jewish believers who recognized Jesus Christ as their Messiah, their King, Yahweh himself, who became incarnate as the light to enlighten the nations and the glory of Israel, formed the trunk of the tree of the church. The Old Testament was the first scripture of the church. The Psalms formed the prayer book of the church. For the church, the Old Testament was received and read not as the unbelieving Jews read it, but as the story of Israel fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament was understood in the context of the church, the true Israel. The Old Testament is an aspect of the holy tradition of the church. But what has been passed down to us is not only the Old Testament text, but also the interpretation of that text. What the scripture says and what it means are inseparable. Trying to interpret Holy Scripture, including the Old Testament, apart from the church, is like unplugging your microwave, packing it up, taking it with you camping in the woods where there's no electricity, and wondering why it's not warming up your burrito. The church is the context of the Old Testament. We find the interpretation of the Old Testament in such places as the reading of the scripture in the church, in the icons of the church, like the icons of creation, Jonah and the whale, or Christ's descent into Hades, where King David and righteous Abel may be shown, in the hymns of the church, in the prayers of the church, and in the writings and the homilies of the Holy Fathers. Also, the Old Testament is interpreted as a narrative unity, that is, as part of the story of salvation. I'll say that again. The Old Testament is interpreted as a narrative unity that is as part of the story of salvation. The story of salvation begins with the words, in the beginning, proceeds through the Old Testament to the birth, the incarnation, and the work of Jesus Christ on earth, to the continuing story of the church that is now unfolding before our eyes and ends with the second coming of Christ and culmination of history. The Old Testament is the beginning of the story. Trying to understand the story of Christ and the church without the Old Testament is like picking up the fourth book in a five-book series and trying to figure out what is going on. The New Testament speaks of salvation, but salvation from what? Let's start with Genesis. So we should see as the Old Testament, we should see the Old Testament as a unity and as in unity with the New Testament and the continuing history of the church. It's easy to see how some books with a narrative flow should be interpreted in the context of the story of salvation. But also lists of commandments and poetry and wise sayings fit into that story and are part of that story of salvation. Pay attention to the sermons of the apostles and the acts of the apostles, how they tell the story of the Old Testament and proclaim that the Old Testament is being fulfilled at their time. The narrative approach may be contrasted 
with a later Western approach, which involves constructing philosophical structures of doctrine in the form of so-called systematic theology that is divorced from the biblical story of salvation. The Old Testament is interpreted in the light of Jesus Christ. And I'll say that again. The Old Testament is interpreted in the light of Jesus Christ. So this puts a finer point on the principle that we should interpret the Old Testament as a story. That story leads to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the taking on of our human nature without change to his divine nature, changes the world. Some pagans tried to discern the Logos and contemplate to some degree a a seed of the Logos, who is Christ, while also making mistakes by speculating on what they didn't know. But the Logos became a human being, born of a virgin, to teach us as one of us. And he taught in human language and revealed himself to us. We worship the whole Christ. We worship the way, the truth, and the life. We even can make an image of God, an icon of God, because Jesus Christ took on a human image we could see with our eyes. He is, as the Apostle Paul wrote, the image of the invisible God, the icon of the invisible God. Since Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament, his church, the body of Christ on earth, by extension and participation, fulfills the Old Testament. We could say that the church, the true Israel of God, is continually fulfilling the Old Testament. For example, the worship of the Orthodox Church is fulfilled Old Testament worship. The fulfillment of sacrifice is presented in Scripture through the stories of the offerings of Abel and Noah and Abraham and the priesthood of Aaron and Melchizedek. And the story proceeds to the explanation of how Jesus Christ, the God-man who is the only one capable of being mediator to join together God and man, offers the final sacrifice for all. The church, through the apostolic worship handed down to us, participates in this fulfillment by offering an unbloody sacrifice of bread and wine upon the holy altar. Every Sunday in the divine liturgy, we are participating in the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We are learning the interpretation of the Old Testament while doing the interpretation. Bringing together the history of the Old Testament narrative while also participating in the mystery revealed in the Old Testament vision of angelic worship and the image shown to us in the book of Revelation, which itself brings together the Old Testament and New Testament. We offer incense in the morning at Orthros, morning prayer, and incense at evening prayer, Vespers. The prophet Malachi prophesied, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The appearance of Jesus Christ on earth is not just prophesied in the Old Testament, but the pre-incarnate Christ is present throughout the Old Testament. Wherever the Father reveals his work in creation, there is the Son and the Holy Spirit working in creation. The Gospel according to St. John begins with these words, in the beginning which takes us immediately to the beginning of Genesis. We know that God said, let there be light. God created through his word, his logos, and the spirit hovered over the waters. 
Among the most profound words of Scripture are these, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the Logos, the Word. Uncreated God and the Son of the Father, without mother on the side of his father and without father on the side of his mother, a human being, one of us. The words in the beginning takes us back to creation. The Son and Word of God was there. In Genesis 15, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and will be your exceedingly great reward. This is not just a disembodied voice, but the vision of the Logos of God. In First Kingdoms, we read, The boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no discerning vision. Now this happened before Samuel knew the Lord and before the word of the Lord was revealed to him. And Yahweh came and stood and called as before. I've compressed several short sentences from a much longer narrative passage uh, from First Kingdoms 3. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were established and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. The Logos is the Son and the breath of his mouth, the Holy Spirit. When we see the Old Testament in the light of Christ, there we see the Logos, the Lord, who created the universe and called the nation of Israel and spoke to the prophets. The Logos, the Word, prophesied his own incarnation, his own crucifixion, his own resurrection, his own ascension into heaven, and his sending of the Holy Spirit to write the law on the hearts of his creation made according to his image. The Father speaks through his Word. As I alluded to, if you read the sermons of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul and speaking to their fellow Jews, you will see how they tell the story of the Old Testament and how it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ at their time. When the Apostle Paul speaks to pagan philosophers in Athens, he likewise tells the story of the Old Testament, but shaped for an audience of the nations, the non-Jews, rather than the Jews. Now let's take a look at how the reading of the Old Testament at Great Vespers, the service of evening prayer, on two major recent feasts, recent to uh, our time in September, bring together the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those feasts are the Nativity of the Theotokos, the birthday of the Virgin Mary, which focuses on the Virgin Mary as the future mother who gives birth to God, right? the God-man Jesus Christ, and the elevation of the cross. The Old Testament readings at Great Vespers for the feasts of the birth of the Virgin Mary show how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. This is from Genesis. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, The Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place! This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Who is the house of God? In whom does God take residence in the womb of the virgin who is the gate through which god enters humanity and from the prophecy of ezekiel then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary which looketh toward the east and it was shut and the lord said unto me this gate shall be shut it shall not be open and no man shall enter in by it because the lord the god of israel shall enter by it and it shall be shut 
for this prince shall sit on it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch, that gate, and shall come forth by the way of the same. And he brought me by the way of the north gate before the house. And I looked and behold, the house of the Lord was full of glory. Who is the eastern gate that remains shut, yet the Lord enters it? The glory of the Lord with the ever-Virgin Mary. And from the Proverbs, wisdom hath built herself a house. Christ is the wisdom of God. And wisdom is she, because Sophia is a grammatically feminine word in Greek. Also the Feast of the Elevation of the precious and life-giving cross. And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he cast it into the water, and the water was sweetened. This is the bitter waters made sweet in, in the book of Exodus. There he established to him ordinances and judgments, and there he proved him and said, If thou wilt indeed hear the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is pleasing in his sight, and will hear Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. No disease which I have brought upon the Egyptians will I bring upon thee, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. This prefigures the cross and the power of the cross. Another reading for the feast is from the book of Proverbs. It recalls wisdom. She is a tree of life to all that lay hold upon her. And she is a secure help to all that stay themselves on her as on the Lord. Christ makes the cross the tree of life. The Old Testament is read in humility and obedience as a theological text for our salvation. And I want to say that again. The Old Testament is read in humility and obedience as a theological text for our salvation. I'm not going to give you a history of scholasticism in the West and its historical trajectory that has led us to where we are today, which would help you understand how the West became what it is after the crowning of Charlemagne in 800 and the Great Schism of 1054. But here are important aspects of Orthodox spirituality and education you need to know for interpreting the Holy Scripture, but also generally for everything you study in an Orthodox school or teach in an Orthodox school. The center of the human person is not the rational mind associated with the brain, but the noose. I'll say that again. The center of the human person is not the rational mind associated with the brain, but the noose. The noose that is the spiritual intellect, the noetic mind, the eye of the soul, the highest aspect of the soul, the spirit, the heart, meaning the spiritual heart that is associated with the physical heart. By heart, I do not mean the seat of emotion, as we often use the term in the West but the spiritual organ by which the invisible world is known and by which we know God. With the rational mind, you can learn philosophical concepts of God, ideas about God. But you can only know God directly 
not mediated by the rational mind, directly by experience with the heart. This is an internal experience. You can think, you can analyze, you can argue, you can debate and write books with the rational mind. Whether you believe in God or not, and whether you are humble or arrogant, you can do these things. But you can only know God, that is, experience God, as we're talking about, real theology, by purifying your heart with humility and obedience and love and repentance through the therapeutic, mystical, ascetical life of the church. But you can use your reason to invent justifications for your arrogant, delusional overconfidence in your ability to reason beyond the limits of reason. A benefit of education is that your justifications can be more complex than other people, even though they are just as false. We just become more complex sometimes with our excuses and our justifications, uh, the more educated we are. The Holy Scripture is a theological text that calls us to experience theology. What does that mean? What is theology in an orthodox sense? In the contemporary Western world and in the history of the West, back several centuries, a theologian is really just a religious philosopher and probably a scholar in an academic institution. Many think of theology as a systematic organization of doctrines developed from an academic study of Scripture. Today, theologians, quote-unquote, uh, promote various theologies, liberation theology, feminist theology, black theology, Asian-American theology, postmodern theology, and so on. But really, that is religious philosophy, the categorization of ideas, and, and dealing with concepts and ideas, but not experience. There is really one theology, and that is the, the same apostolic theology that doesn't change, because God doesn't change, and the experience is consistent. But what is an orthodox theologian in the traditional sense of the word, in the orthodox sense of the world, word that uh, is, is the same all through the uh, history of salvation, all through the, the history of the church? A theologian is not one who studies God and knows things about God, or necessarily one who studies doctrinal concepts or who teaches doctrine, or tries to figure out philosophical questions, even, even those that are related to, uh, to doctrine or ultimate things. That's, that's not what we're talking about. If you want to know what theology is, read the story of Christ's transfiguration on Mount Tabor. That's theology in an orthodox sense. Peter, James, and John knew who Christ was because they experienced the vision of Christ in glory. This wasn't just an external vision with the physical eyes, but their hearts were open to see the uncreated divine glory that is Christ's own glory that shined from his body. The glory, which is the grace of God, which is his divine presence, was always there, but humans were too spiritually blind to see it. And yet Christ allowed Peter, James, and John to see as much as they could contain but they still fell on their faces. This is also is what we call contemplation. In an orthodox sense, contemplation is not 
thinking about ideas deeply. It's far deeper and far beyond reason and thinking about anything. What impression did this event leave on Peter, James, and John? What did the Apostle John write about the Logos, the word in the first chapter of his gospel account? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What does the Apostle Peter write? But we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first and no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never comes by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, wherever we see one person of the Trinity, we see the Trinity. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at work and, and revealing. A little earlier in the same letter, the Apostle Peter wrote, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is knowing God directly by experience, not as a rational concept, intellectually believed, but by a faith in Christ, the person of Christ, because they knew him personally as God. At Pentecost, the apostles were enlightened by the Holy Spirit so that they, including the simple fishermen, knew perfect theology beyond the capacity of human reason so that they could teach the world and gather the whole world into their net. Saul, also known as Paul, had this experience when he saw Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and he went blind into the power of God, restored his sight. After his conversion, the apostle Paul wrote the Christians in Galatia, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from man. Nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So for the Orthodox, theology is to know Jesus Christ and to acquire knowledge pertaining to spiritual things through the direct experience of the divine glory, which is God himself, the presence of God, the grace of God. So to ask plainly, can we acquire theological knowledge, including the deepest meaning of scripture and the fathers through rational inquiry and analysis and dialectical discussion. Absolutely not. 
we are talking about something far beyond that and far deeper. We can be led toward a trajectory, but this only comes through real theology, real experience, which only comes through repentance and humility. Think about this. What if you become convinced of a certain interpretation of Scripture, and you successfully, through reasonable, logical argumentation expressed through your superior rhetorical skills, convince other people that your own interpretation is undeniably correct? Does that mean the group has found truth through dialectical discussion or alternatively that you have discovered the raw material for establishing a new denomination or a bizarrely heretical religious cult? I guess, depending on how imaginative you are. The question is not what is truth, but who is truth? He became incarnate and revealed himself plainly. And this, this is the way of tradition the life of the Orthodox Church, the pillar and ground of truth. Now, God has given you reason, and you should use it to his glory. You can read the scripture and find thematic connections in the narrative, connecting the tree of life, the staff of Aaron, and the cross, and the tree, and the new Jerusalem of, of uh, the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. And you can understand in your rational mind the meaning of the ethical teaching of this, the virtues of the practical way that we are to live in this life and the avoiding of sin. And you can see a map of the story in the path of salvation. But keep in mind, the scripture is a product of the theology of the church written by true theologians. And it is not telling you their stories and showing you the way of salvation so that you can write papers and have discussions. But so that you will enter into the same powerful, transfiguring experience of salvation through divine grace that they experienced. You're being called into the purifying divine flame of uncreated fire that cools you as a dewy breeze. Only when you experience the divine grace and are taught by God directly by your noose, your heart, will you understand the depth of the Holy Scripture. As the heart is purified, so is our reason and our ability to reason rightly, as well as purifying our action, how we live practically. The purification of the heart by divine grace that brings true, direct, Knowledge of God by experience shapes the spiritual intellect, which is the acquisition of what we call the phronema, which can be defined as the mind of Christ or the mind of the fathers or the mind of the church. It's the same. It is the spiritual mind of the heart that brings the reason into harmony with it, necessary for understanding the inner meaning, that is the depth of meaning of Holy Scripture. And really understanding our interaction with other people, our interaction with the creation, understanding everything. Now, what do we do if we have set ourselves firmly on this way of Christ? With humility and repentance, following the commandments of Christ the best we can, 
following this therapeutic way of life of the church, but we have not yet reached the heights of spiritual knowledge. What do we do if we are where we are now and we have not yet ascended the mountain? Well, when we read Holy Scripture, we read it with humility and obedience, staying very, very close to the Holy Fathers who do know what they are talking about. Orthodox theology does not change. No one can invent new theology. We stay very close to the Holy Tradition until we ourselves embody the tradition within our own hearts and our lives. We live the tradition truly, which is the life in the Spirit. When we read Scripture, the question is not, what do I think this means? But what has God revealed to us, which the fathers have taught? Again, we don't take Sola Scriptura as an approach or a more secular Bible as literature approach, meaning that we do not read the Bible or the fathers like we read and analyze Homer, Plato, Dante, Jane Austen, or any, anyone else. But we take a Bible as Holy Scripture as approach. We should think of the Scripture really as its own divine genre in some ways. So consulting the Fathers and other aspects of the apostolic tradition to interpret the Scripture, that's not cheating. That's not like reading the Cliff's Notes. Like we're supposed to just look at the text and not look at something else. That is how Orthodox believers read the Scripture. Until we know how to interpret the Scripture by having the mind of Christ and the Fathers in the Church. It's a powerful experience. But importantly, while also living the life of prayer and repentance, that's, that's important. We read the Scripture as believers staying close to the Fathers while living that life of prayer and repentance ourselves. And by the way, again, we do not read the Holy Fathers. And, and by Holy Fathers, I, I use it in a more limited sense of this the saints of the church, only including those who are the saints of the church. We don't read the fathers as ordinary literature either. Those writings alongside scripture are of the church, not of the academy, even when we read it within school. They are not disconnected from the church is what I mean. And we read them as the church reads them. We read the words of the fathers with humility that we may be guided on the way toward the purification of the heart and theosis, becoming like Christ by participation in his grace. That's what Christ-likeness is in an orthodox sense. It's not that we become like Christ because we just follow these particular virtues, that we live in a certain way. But we become like Christ through participation in his glory, which shapes us and guides and empowers us to live naturally, according to his grace. Since Orthodox theology is from revelation to the heart, revelation, not an expression of rational speculation or imagination, we should not confuse, for example, reading a doctrinal expression of the Holy Trinity, such as the Creed, and imagine that we are getting our minds around an incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity by using our reason and our imagination. It is a mystery. It is beyond the ability of the human mind to comprehend it. 
And the fathers of the church did not speculate. They drew a clear, distinct line that if you have crossed this line, you've gone off the path into heresy. You do not, you are not having a correct experience of God. You have a misunderstanding of God. That path will lead you away from the experience of God in the kingdom of God. So that line demarcates that path of mystery. If we misunderstand who God is, who God has revealed himself to be, we end up misunderstanding who we are and correct relationships and and, and the path misunderstands salvation. The fathers cared about this because it, it pertains to our salvation, to our healing, our spiritual healing and transfiguration. So we can't get our minds around this incomprehensible mystery, right? As, as though it's just uh, uh, that it's a rational concept. St. Simeon, the new theologian, who wrote about the unity of the Trinity, and of the distinction of the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as known from his own experience of the vision of Christ in glory, the uncreated glory, this experience of the uncreated grace that is the power and presence of God. He said this, and by the way, he's, he's called St. Simeon the New Theologian, probably because he was St. Simeon the New, as opposed to the older St. Simeon, and he was St. Simeon the theologian in the truest sense, and these were merged together as new theologian. His theology, there's one theology, it's apostolic theology, so it's not that there's anything innovative theologically. He said this, we think we will receive the full knowledge of God's truth by means of worldly wisdom, and fancy that this mere reading of the God-inspired writings of the saints is to comprehend orthodoxy and that this is an exact and certain knowledge of the Holy Trinity. Nor is this all, but the more august among us foolishly suppose that the contemplation which comes to pass only through the Spirit in those who are worthy is the same as the thoughts produced by their own reasoning. How ridiculous, how callous. Indeed, these people who have plunged sacrilegiously into the depths of God and hurry on to do theology, when they hear of God, that in the Trinity there is the light of the single Godhood, just as there is a single mingling of light among three sons. Right away, picture three sons in their imagination, united in the light, which is the essence and distinguished in the apostasies, and then stupidly imagine that they see the divinity itself, and that the holy consubstantial and undivided Trinity is just like their imagined paradigm. But it is just not so, not at all. For no one is able to think or speak properly about what concerns the Holy Trinity from just reading the scriptures. One instead accepts it by faith alone, abides with what has been written, and does not dabble with anything more. For those who are curious and dare to meddle cheerfully with divine things, they should understand that it is not possible to say anything at all outside of what has been written and taught by the Holy Father. Now, if you don't understand what St. Simeon is talking about, remember that until you have the same experience as the saints that they are inviting you into and the scripture invites you into, you won't really understand what they're saying as they know it. But that is the experience of the Holy Scripture that it is leading us into. This should keep us humble. But thank God, along the path that leads up the mountain, we have we have these saints as our guides. 
through their words handed down to us. And we have them as living intercessors between before God and before his throne. So they're intercessors before the throne of Christ, who is the one mediator, the God-man, who the only one that can bring together God and man. What is important for you now as a student or as a teacher is that you put yourself on that trajectory toward being able to really know the meaning of Holy Scripture with the phronema, the mind of the fathers, to really know God personally in the deepest sense. Now be encouraged by where you can ascend the goal and who you can become how you can be purified and, and transfigured. But do not be discouraged by where you are now because God is with you and he knows you. Walk toward Christ, always oriented toward him. One prayerful step at a time in humility and obedience and repentance. Because God does not change, the experience of God is consistent. Why do the Orthodox refuse to create theological innovations or speculations or change our doctrines? Even though through the ages, the language that we use to express the same doctrine, doctrine sometimes does change to differentiate what we believe from heresy and, and for the purposes of evangelism. Why do we refuse to change our theology though, and our doctrines? Because all those who have experienced true theology express the same theology whether the holy apostles in the first century or the saints of the 21st century. I should say those who lived in the, the late 20th century, as an example. They have the same mind from the of Christ as the apostles. These saints may be contrasted with the heretics who mix reason and imagination with their pride to express their own opinion, rather than expressing the unchanging faith once for all delivered to the saints confirmed in the Holy Spirit by experience from generation to generation. And those who teach heresy, they tend not to be correctable because they believe their opinion is greater than what was taught by the Holy Apostles and what has been experienced by the Church. I should say that with regard to scholarly material, whether from an Orthodox source or a non-Orthodox source, you should remember that all truth belongs to the Christians because we worship the one who is true. So wherever we find truth, that belongs to us and we must be discerning. We must be the bee to use an orthodox image, meaning that we take the nectar that is sweet, going from flower to flower and only taking that which is useful and sweet, beneficial, what is true, and, and leaving behind whatever is false in whatever we encounter. So we are not the fly. We do not go toward what is rotten and, and smelly and bad, but we go toward only that which is sweet, only that which is true, disregarding everything else that is not beneficial. And we have the holy tradition to sift whatever we find and to test whatever we find and, and, and uh, determine whether it's useful, whether it's true. Word studies investigation of extra canonical texts that may help us to understand the biblical world, archaeological discoveries, uh, detailed 
comparative analyses of different uh, biblical texts that have different variant readings uh, among the ancient manuscripts, uh, comparing uh, the uh, Greek Septuagint and Hebrew manuscripts, uh, social and cultural studies, and so on, whatever material that we may find. All of this can be helpful if we are discerning, if we are the bee. We do need to make a distinction, though, between this unchanging revelation, the theology that we absolutely know with certainty, revealed in the fathers, and, on the other hand, scholarly speculation based on reason that, like scientific theories, can change over time as new information is found and better ways of understanding are determined. So with regard to scholarship, we should treat ideas that are in reasonable harmony with holy tradition as tentative and distinct from revelation as we know it. What human beings determine by reason is distinct and separate from what the church knows by revelation, and we should not confuse these things. It is this separation that also ensures that theology and science are friends. Because we do not confuse changeable scientific theory based on the observation of a fallen world and the use of the senses and the guide of, of reason and imagination that is part of our imperfect humanity in this fallen world. We don't confuse that with the unchanging revelation of the uncreated God. The Holy Scripture, the God-bearing fathers, and the life of the Holy Orthodox faith should be studied in Orthodox schools. Our students should be formed by it. But as more of an ascetic discipline than an academic discipline. In Orthodox schools, those things that pertain to the church are still of the church and must be treated properly as such rather than being thrown into the usual scholastic humanities box with other subjects taught at the school. Remember, we are centered on the heart, the noose. Some of you are likely students who are hearing this, and parents of students or faculty in a very fine academic institution. Our students are being taught, God willing, to reason well and to communicate well. But remember that when you study Holy Scripture and the Holy Fathers and any of the aspects of Holy Tradition, they are not objects for you to analyze as much as texts and aspects to diagnose your own spiritual disease and show you the way to heal from death in all its various manifestations by the divine power of life himself. Ask yourself the question when reading the Old Testament in the light of Christ. Having read this, what must I do to be saved? And we use salvation in the Orthodox Church in a very broad sense. What must I do to be healed? 
Or another way, how does this show me how to repent that I might know Christ more in my heart? Thank you for watching or listening to this lecture on an orthodox approach to Old Testament interpretation. May God bless your journey.